Open to Exodus chapter 19. We are back in the desert, no longer in our Advent series. However, I did realize after studying this, this would have been a perfectly fine chapter to study what it means when God comes in the presence of man, uh, as he does in Christ, but he does here at Mount Sinai. Uh, this chapter is a fitting chapter, not only as the first Sunday of our week, but as it is Israel's brand new life in relationship with Yahweh. I'm just going to give a, a quick review, then we'll get into this since it's been some weeks now. Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, where Yahweh initially appeal, appeared to Moses in the burning bush, saying, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and uh, you know that place where you ran from, that you murdered a man, I'm going to send you back there, bring Israel out and come to this very mountain that I am at right now, the burning bush mountain, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the same, same place. Moses goes, he is welcomed warmly by Israel. No, not really. But through God's plagues, his judgments, through these miracles, through the Red Sea, through the smiting of the firstborn, through such powerful judgments, God brings his people out of Egypt. Then after they're out of Egypt, they sing a wonderful song in Exodus 15. And then after the song stops, the grumbling starts. They're going through the wilderness. They're grumbling. They're complaining, not only against Moses, but against Yahweh himself, questioning Yahweh's very goodness. The very God who brought them out of Egypt, who heard their cries from the gutter, they are now grumbling against. And uh, after giving some receiving some advice from Jethro, Moses and Israel are now at the foot of Mount Sinai. But the question that is going on in Israel's mind, and the question that goes on in our mind as we walk the Christian life is, what is God doing? He saved us powerfully, no doubt about it. But what's he doing now? What is he doing now? Chapter 19 shows that what he is doing is making their future glorious. He's bringing into fruition the glorious, glorious plan he has for Israel. Not just to save, but to save his people and dwell with them. Here at Sinai, and we'll get into this, he codifies a glorious and wonderful law. He establishes a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And he is taking this ragtag group of refugees and making them glorious, beautiful. It is the exact thing he's doing for you in the church. The cross as glorious as the cross is, it is, it is a means to an end. It is, it is a glorious means to an end, but it is not the final chapter. The final chapter is dwelling on Mount Zion with God. 
Now we get there through the blood of Christ, through Calvary, but Sinai here typifies what your future will be if you're in Christ, a glorious dwelling with God. John Newton, I think, captures this well. As we walk about our Christian life and we, we look back at where we've been, how the Lord saved us, and yet we're waiting still for a, a fullness of salvation to come to fruition, Newton says, I am not what I ought to be. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. And that's where you live, believer. You aren't what you weren't, and you are not yet what you are. You live in a life of waiting, previously saved and waiting for glory. And it's a glorious, glorious waiting. So, what does God do for his people here at Mount Sinai? First, we're going to see the gracious promises that Israel is going to stand to inherit. Please follow along as I read verses 1 to 8. On the third moon, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people gathered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. This is one of the first of three cycles Moses is going to play as mediator between Yahweh on this soon-to-be scorched mountain and Israel down below at the foot of the mountain. And the cycles are simple. Yahweh speaks to Moses or calls Moses up. He gives him a divine speech. Moses brings that word down to Egypt, uh, down to Israel. And thirdly, Israel responds. That's three cycles relatively the same way in this entire chapter. This is the first cycle. Before we get into the, the nitty gritty, I, I, I have to highlight this and I'll highlight it again and again from chapters 19 to 24, because it is when Moses is on Sinai and he's being given the law by Yahweh to give to Israel, okay? That's, a, that's one unit, 19 to 24. But this must be said. Yahweh delivers. 
And then he commands obedience. He brings his people out. And then he demands obedience. It is in our nature to flip that script. I must obey in order for him to deliver. No, what was Israel like in Egypt? Pitiful slaves. They cry to the Lord. Yahweh hears it in association with the previous covenant to Abraham. And he says, I will carefully deliver them. He saves and then he demands obedience. That is absolutely vital for our understanding. There's no place in the Bible that teaches salvation by works. If there was at all any place in the Bible where it taught salvation by works, it would be in chapter 19 or in chapter 20 of Exodus. And what we see is not that. We see grace, then obedience. Deliverance, redemption, then obedience. Okay, that's just a framework we have to keep in mind. Secondly, notice the covenant promises that God is causing to fall on Israel, though they were never given directly to Israel, per se. Okay, so in this speech in verses four to six that Yahweh gives to Moses to give to Israel, he is speaking Abrahamic covenant language. The very promises God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, he is causing to fall on Israel. And this is what he said. I will not read too large of portions, but these are a smattering of promises God gave to that he is causing to graciously fall upon Moses and Israel. I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's their time in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That came to pass. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. And to, and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's the context. Those are the gracious, good promises God gave to Abraham, and he's causing to fall upon Israel. Did Israel merit that at all? No, not at all. Not at all. But God is being true to his promise, and he is extending this promise to Abraham, to Israel, and to Moses. The grace that fell on Abraham is now falling on Israel. Thirdly, 
This covenant with Abraham causes God to record them as, as it says in verse 5, a treasured possession. A treasured possession. God will see Israel not as what the Egyptians saw them as, slaves, free labor, complaining labor. He will see them and regard them as his beloved people, freely loved, treasured, cherished <coughs> possession. God also calls them a kingdom of priests. They will be a kingdom which is priest-like to the whole world so that the, the good law, the Torah, the good news of Yahweh will go throughout the world mediated through Israel. Israel, a priest to mediate, to extend, and to spread abroad the good news of the I Am who is their God. And then they are also described to be a holy nation. No doubt a pure, morally pure nation, but a distinct nation. A distinct, different nation. A nation altogether different than every other nation. This is the glorious future for Israel. And you can just see the picture here. Dusty, dirty, complaining. They come to this... They come to this mountain, and God lays up at their feet, let me show you what your future is going to be. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, serving the only true living God to the whole world. You're going to be my cherished possession, my favorite son, my, my son, as Israel's called. A holy nation. You'll be the apple of my eye, as the Old Testament says. No doubt Israel's just standing there sheepishly like, oh, okay, whatever you say. We in our heart of hearts know we do not merit this. But God has been gracious to us. Now, this is a very difficult chapter. There are a series of problems in this chapter. We're going to see the first one right now. This glorious future, awesome, glorious, wonderful, pure, amazing future for Israel is conditioned on their obedience. In verse 5. In verse 4, God says, hey, you saw what I did to the Egyptians? I bore you out on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. If you will indeed obey my voice. God says, these are my plans. If you will obey, walk in my statutes, mock, walk in my way, keep my covenant, you will have this future. If. It's a big if. That's like the first time you're buying a house. Okay, this analogy is way lower than like the truth of what Scripture says here. You're buying your first house. You make your offer. You negotiate back and forth, and then for some reason the owner says, uh, hold on, if, let's, let's see if I can squeeze more money out of you here, or uh, if you agree to do your own you know, inspection, or 
you know, if you do this or that. This is a big if, very big if. It is such a big if. We know for sure, knowing Israel's history, it is a impossible if. They cannot keep his covenant. Before Moses is even coming down from Sinai, in the middle of God giving them the law, they're building a calf, an idol. Their New Year's resolution isn't even a month old before they give up on it. And then they, you know, their rap sheet, it's as long as the Dead Sea. Idolatry, slavery, hating one another, murder, kings fighting one another. They are a, they were, they're called God's son, but they are a rebellious son, a disobedient son. And for that, God sends them into exile and he gives them a writ of divorce. They're supposed to be a holy nation. They're supposed to be a kingdom of priests, and yet they are a rebellious son. And if you're tracking, I know you are, their disobedience still did not frustrate God's plans. The warp and woof of God's covenant promises, bringing the Messiah bringing forgiveness, atoning for sin, never was wrapped up in Israel's obedience. It was always wrapped up in the obedience of another son. God founded his covenant with Abraham on pure grace. Israel, that disobedient son, failed. God has a different son who will obey the covenant perfectly. He will walk in the statutes of Yahweh perfectly. The delight of the Torah will be on his heart. And it is through that son, the son of God, Jesus Christ the righteous, that blessings come. Not through Israel, but through Jesus Christ alone. Paul would say in the third chapter of Galatians, as he is dealing with this dilemma, well, God promised Abraham an offspring that would be a blessing to the nations. That offspring, Israel, completely failed the test. Does that invalidate the promise he gave to Abraham? Paul says, no, that doesn't invalidate a previous promise that was based on grace. No, not at all. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, get that. If you are Christ's, that sounds like a possession, a treasured possession, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Not the Mosaic promise, but the promise Yahweh first gave to Abraham, and in fact, first gave to Eve. 
He promised that serpent would be dead under the heel of the Messiah. And just to nail this point home again, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 to the church that he writes to. This isn't national Israel. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So all that Israel failed to do did not frustrate the plans of God. God just continued that forward and wrapped that up in the obedience of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross so that all who come to Christ, who have faith in Christ, receive the promised inheritance. Israel had a mission. There would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The church has a mission to carry the gospel forward. That is, our, that is our mission, to mediate the blessings of the gospel to the whole world. doesn't matter what ethnicity, age, anything, but to mediate God's promises to the whole world. How does the Christian know God will not give you a writ of divorce Because you're disobedient, right? Like Israel, you're not perfectly upholding his law. Because you sit under a covenant enacted on better promises. The Mosaic covenant says, do this and live. You'll live by your works. The new covenant says, Christ has done it all, receive. Yahweh does not give a writ of divorce to those whom he calls in the new covenant, which are bought and purchased and paid for by the blood of Christ. So that is their future, their, their glorious future, Israel's, and in type fashion, ours as well. Notice also what God is making them to be on another level. Follow along as I read verses 9 to 15. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready on the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. But he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. What is going on here? God is making them what he wants them to be. And maybe actually also cluing them into what their future will be and what they need to be. This Saul centers on the one word in verse 10 that God tells Moses to consecrate Israel. What does consecrate mean? Consecrate means to make holy. Uh, if we were to verbalize it, 
to holify, <laughs> to make holy. He tells Israel, make these people holy, and then also understand that no one should touch this mountain. And if they do, they're a goner. Animal, human, doesn't matter. But he is asking, and he's not asking, he's telling Moses to make Israel holy, to consecrate them. Why? Because God is holy. And God dwells with holy people. He dwells with holy people. This consecration involved an elimination of common things. Washing clothes, washing body, and avoiding sex. They were to avoid common life things to understand that God's presence is not a common presence. He is a holy God, and common things don't are antithetical to God's holiness. Here and now here's the second problem we see here. Now God is holy. He's really holy. He's he's actually ontologically, metaphysically holy, inherently, truly holy, right? You can't pretend it's not holy. You can't uh, put off his holiness for a moment. He is holy. Everywhere he goes, his holiness goes with him because he is who he is. The problem is he tells Israel to be consecrated. Does taking a bath actually make them holy? No. Does avoiding marital enjoyment or washing clothes do anything in their heart to make them holy? No. The consecration made them no different, but it did, it did do a couple things. One, it told them what they needed to be. They needed to be holy. They must be something that they are not. They are intrinsically unholy. And a holy God is coming down to meet with them. But they can't change their own spots. They are told they need to be holy. It is utterly, utterly absurd to think, oh, I need to get right with God. I'm, on, uh, I'm not feeling well. I have COVID on my deathbed. I'm going to die here soon. Let me give my money to the poor. Let me change my broken moral compass. Let me do some things. Let me even call a Catholic priest to give me my last rites so that I can be approved to God. Those things don't make anyone holy. We need an intrinsic change, a change of the soul, a change of the heart. Going to church doesn't make anyone holy. Giving to the tithe box doesn't make anyone holy. We must be something that we are further from. To be in God's presence. And yet the absurdity is we think, oh, if I do good things, God will like me. Does the, the um, 
I don't know what you call them, but the Santa Clauses used to be out in front of Albertsons, Walmart. You know, you put some change in the little bucket. Salvation Army, I don't know what it's for. Forgive me. Does that do anything for you? Other than maybe assuage some guilt. But does it do anything? Are you, in your being, changed? Because you go to church. You want to be a right person. You give money to the poor. To be, to, for God to demand holiness from his creatures is to demand them to do something they cannot do. You would much easier walk to the moon and back before we can become holy. It's impossible. But yet, God says, this is how, this is who I roll with. Holy people. So that everywhere I go, my holiness is there. I go and light a fire in a bush, a supernatural fire, the bush is holy. I descend on a mountain, the mountain's holy. The presence of God is holy. So they needed to be holy. It also shows them what they will be. What they will be. God makes his people holy. Do you feel holy? You will be one day. You will be radiantly righteous and holy. It might seem silly. Wash some garments, take a bath. That's not going to do anything for me. You're right, it doesn't. But it does show what we need to be, and it does show by God's grace what we will be. We will be, you will be holy, pure, spotless, blameless, righteous, so holy that it would be as if you obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. You will be as holy because the law is an extension of the character of God like him. How does this happen? Well, some of us who still have Christmas trees up in their home might have Christmas songs still playing and have this lyric playing in your head. It's amazing how profound some of these little child hymns are. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No, we hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide in us, our Lord Emmanuel. How are you made holy? By Christ dwelling in you. 
the Holy Son of God takes up residence in you and holifies you, consecrates you. And he's doing that until you reach glory. His advent meant change on the deepest level in your soul. He makes you holy. <laughs> you can, does putting on a baseball hat make you a baseball player? No. Neither does washing your clothes to be consecrated. Holiness only comes from God. Only comes from God. Lastly, notice the kind of God who has adopted them. Verses 16 to the end of the chapter. This is, this is, the, this is kind of the grand finale and also a setup for next week because chapter 20, at least a large portion of it, is the speech he gives to Moses. Moses is supposed to carry down to Israel. But of course, before he gives a speech, Yahweh shows up. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to Yahweh consecrate themselves, lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And Yahweh said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to, the, to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. In all of God's previous dealings with Israel, they never got a look at him. They never saw him. They still don't see him. The plagues, the Red Sea, the provision in the wilderness, they never saw God. They never met their maker, their deliverer. I'm sure some of us can remember some very, very important introductions in our life. The first time you met your future spouse or something along those lines. Here is Israel's meeting 
of Yahweh. They are meeting Yahweh. The only problem, and this is the third problem, uh, to put it one way, he can't be met. (laughs) No one can see Yahweh. He descends upon Sinai with such power that even inanimate creation bows to him. They've never seen him. They know Egyptian gods. They've heard of Egyptian gods. They've seen images of Egyptian gods, but they don't know who Yahweh is. They know he delivered them. They know he's provided for them. They sang to him, but they've never seen him. They've never met him. They've never talked to him. What is God like? He is an all-powerful Egyptian deity, destroying, living God. And he is a sufficient provider who dwells in unapproachable holiness. So here's the dilemma. Holy God comes down to dwell in the presence of unholy people. But it can't happen. It can't happen. It's like breathing underwater and air at the same time. Doesn't work. Can't happen. I don't even, that, that illustration came to the top of my mind just now. Maybe you scientists know other things. However, it is oxymoronic for a holy God to dwell in the presence of unholy people. There's a problem. There's a problem. God is unapproachable due to his holiness and man's lack thereof. God comes down and there is a terrible, terrible scene. Smoke, fire, earthquake, thunder. And as Paul says, he is the Lord who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And of course, man, as one commentator put it, says regarding this meet and greet, to direct a divine presence would annul human existence. To direct, and direct is important. That's why we have the God-man, Christ Jesus, our mediator. To direct a divine presence would annul human existence. Even the disobedient people, it seems to be that there are not everybody who consecrated themselves. We're told, you better consecrate yourself. If you come up to take a peek at who Yahweh is, you're a goner. If you break out to see Yahweh, he's going to break against you. Definitely a play on words there. And if the priests who, who pridefully thought their place and their office allow them not to be consecrated, Yahweh says in verse 22, I'll break out to you too. <laughs> I am a fair, holy person. Moses, unconsecrated priests, unconsecrated people, it doesn't matter. Yahweh cannot be approached in his direct holiness. And this, this Sinai is terrifying. Terrifying. But it is our future. Not in the way that we will be terrified before the Lord, but it is why we read what we did for our call to worship. Israel comes to Sinai and they tremble. Knees are shaking. Palms are sweaty. They're 
in the next chapter, they'll just say, okay, we understand that Moses came down so that we believe you, Moses. We believe you. Let him speak to you and you relay that to us. We don't want to hear him talk anymore. Really puts a perspective on uh, how maybe some of our brothers and sisters would desire to see the Lord. Desire to have an experience of the Lord, unmitigated, unmediated. But this is our future, not, not because it's Sinai, but because the future is dwelling with God on a mountain, Mount, Mount Zion. Here, fallen man, unholy man, rightly terrified, rightly terrified. If you are walking away from this message thinking, I can't be in God's presence, I don't want to be in God's presence, because you haven't repented of sin, you haven't confessed, you're not in Christ, you are getting the message loud and clear. However, for all those who are in Christ, who do have Christ, as the hymn says, born within them, our future is like this, just not in fear, but in joy. And I'll read that verse again. You have not come to Sinai, blazing fire, gloom. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to God, the judge of all. And you've also come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you've also come, finally, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God is making his people see his great plan. I brought you out of slavery to give you this great, grand, glorious inheritance. But you must be holy. You must be holy if you're going to inherit it. And that holiness only comes from God. You know, there are repeated lessons from that burning bush. We saw that, I don't know how many months ago now. How does God reveal himself at the burning bush? I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. The great I am, Yahweh, life, self-sufficient, self-existent. Um, but what have we also seen as Israel's in Egypt and as they're out? Even though Israel has great lack, they don't have the power to deliver themselves. They can't ask for manna to come down from heaven. They can't purify bitter water. Where does all that come from? Man has a great lack in themselves and its need is met in the sufficiency of God. That's the lesson of the burning bush that just teaches us again and again. What God demands of us, he provides out of himself. Nowhere in the Christian religion is it, if, if you're smart enough, witty enough, funny enough, good enough, good looking enough, You'll make it. Quite the contrary. If you're ready to be associated with the unwitty, the, the, the non-good looking, the shameful, the weak, 
and you recognize yourself as poor in spirit, you'll have a glorious, glorious future. This passage shows us that glorious future, taking a weak and feeble group, making them into a glorious nation. And the same is true for you. We are not presently what we will be. Our future is glorious. And for that we wait. But we can confidently say we are not now what we once were. And they're both by God's grace. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Teach us, teach us the great privilege we have calling you Father. We have no business calling you our Father. We we would even be wrong and proud to say that we're saints, holy ones, if it wasn't by your first calling of us but you have made us what we are not. Saints, children of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, co-heirs of his kingdom. Give us an eye towards our future, our glorious inheritance, and remind us that you are marching us towards Zion, where we will have enjoyment of you forever. Amen.